0: Now, I didn't uh, become Christian until I was about 25 years old, and what that does for me is it gives me an opportunity to remember some of the very first things that I learned in my Christian walk. In my first Christmas season, as a follower of Christ, I learned something from one of my rabbis that's really stuck with me. It's a little silly, it's a little quirky, but for some reason, every summer or every winter, when we start to celebrate these holidays, this uh, practice has become a part of my life. What I learned from this rabbi was this, most of our nativity scenes aren't really biblically accurate, Now, there are a few reasons that this is true, but there's one particular piece of our typical nativity scene that shouldn't be there. It's a little bit off. And so this rabbi of mine explained to me that every time he saw a nativity scene, whether it was in his own home or the home of somebody that invited him in, or even in a store, he would correct these nativity scenes. Now this is a pretty simple little nativity scene that I've put here that that Chris graciously offered his gifts to. It's pretty simple and it was actually created here in this church in the children's ministry by my son Oliver, uh, which by the way, we had one very similar to this. We put this one in a donation bin this year. That was a problem. We got it back. But this is a pretty simple little set. It's got just the essentials. You'll notice that we have the single angel to herald the good news. We've got mom and dad, Joseph and Mary, and we've got the baby Jesus. But do you notice uh, some of the things that are missing when we have these nativity sets? This is only, what, four pieces here, but we often have 50 or 60, right? What are some of the pieces that are missing from this nativity set? I hear shepherds, and usually with the shepherds, we have all these animals too. We've got the whole collection of barnyard animals littered about the nativity scene. What else are we missing? Donkeys. I heard donkeys. Angels. Well, we got one, at least one. It's not a chorus of angels, but we got one. What else? Wise men. That's what we're missing. We're missing a star. And we're missing these three kings, these three foreign dignitaries that bring their gifts to this Christ child. But here's the thing about the Christmas scene. The Christmas nativity shouldn't really normally have the three wise men. They weren't there for the birth of Jesus. In fact, by our best guess, using the clues in the text, the magi followed a star that they found in the east to Bethlehem, over the course of about two years. The Magi probably didn't show up to greet this child until this child was almost two years old. And so what my friend, what my teacher did when he found a nativity scene is that he would take the three Magi from that nativity scene and he would go somewhere completely different in the home. And he would set them up somewhere, somewhere else on some shelf or something, and he would orient them towards a lamp where they're looking at a star that would guide them back to the nativity scene. Can you imagine the chaos this probably caused the stores that he visited as he hid these magi around these department stores? I have kind of followed in this practice. I promise if you invite me into your home, I won't mess with your nativity scene. But my wife did catch on to my aversion to putting the uh, three magi with our own. And so our second Christmas together, she got me an ornament of three wise men that I could put anywhere in the house. <laughs> and I love it because I find, I find different places every year. This year, they're hidden way up on top of this decoration on our wall in our living room, looking at a light that will guide them to the nativity scene. Our missing magi this morning are right over there. The light that they were oriented to was the glowing face of Pastor Darrell, who led them <laughs> towards this nativity scene. And actually, it's, it's not the nativity scene at this point. It's the epiphany scene. And so traditionally here at Alamo Heights UMC, we mark the day of epiphany on this Sunday that falls after the, the end of the 12th day of Christmas. And it's on this day that we celebrate the arrival of these Magi to Bethlehem. We call this day Epiphany. And to have an Epiphany is to have an encounter with the divine. An Epiphany is a moment in which we meet God and it's, it's an experience of being invited into the presence of the divine of receiving divine relationship and divine revelation, and it's to reciprocate that relationship with our own genuine response. And finally, when these moments of epiphany end, we're sent forth, changed by the encounter that we've had. Sometimes we're sent with a new task, sometimes a new mission or a new vision for the future and what's possible. Sometimes we're made more aware of the power and the possibilities of transformation and restoration that we might bring to the world around us. And so today we enter into the season of epiphany, a season of encountering God. And as we gather here in the coming weeks, we're going to be exploring different stories of people encountering the divine. My hope is that as we encounter these stories, we'll also encounter the God behind them. And my hope is that we'll find ourselves in these stories, that we'll find that even our own stories are reflected in the stories that we study. And that in our own stories, we have these moments of encounter, these moments where we're welcomed into the presence of God and that we leave different. I hope that we'll gain in these coming weeks renewed vision. That we'll gain a new idea of what is possible here in this world because of the love that we bear. And so today, we start with one of the earliest stories in our Bible about an encounter with the divine in Genesis 18. Now, as our story begins, we find Abraham reclining in the entrance to his tent on the hottest part of a hot day in a region where hot days hit the triple digits. Now, we didn't read this part of the story today, but what happened in chapter 17 gives us a little bit of help understanding what's so remarkable about this situation. Right at the end of chapter 17, Abraham at 99 years old and all the males of his household performed a rather pointed little ritual in which they had to do a snip. And now Abraham at the beginning of chapter 18 is recovering from this ritual. Abraham at 99 is reclining At the entrance to his tent, perhaps trying to get a little breeze from the outside and a little shade from the inside. And you can imagine that as he's sitting there, the slightest movement might hurt. Suddenly, it says, Abraham opened his eyes and looked up. Three men had appeared out of nowhere. And the narrator lets us in on the secret identity of these visitors. But as the narrative begins, Abraham does not know that he's in the presence of God. This is the same God that has spoken to Abraham over and over again. This is the same God that sent Abraham from his father's house, that sent him on a decades-long journey. This is the same God that had promised Abraham a child and told him that he would be the father of many nations and cut a covenant in blood with this Abraham. And as yet had let this promise go unfulfilled. And while you and I as the readers know that this is that same God, Abraham does not. And so Abraham's situation and Abraham's limited information make this scene rather interesting. Abraham looks up and he suddenly sees these three visitors and despite his sensitivity... He leaps into action, and in just a few verses, we get verb after verb after verb of harried activity. Abraham ran. Abraham greeted. Abraham kneeled. Abraham hurried. He ran again. He took a calf. He then served his guests a feast. All of this in the heat of the hottest day and with his impediment. But it's when this meal is finally served when this table is finally set, that the scene slows down. It's during this meal that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, begin to recognize exactly who it is that they're hosting. These visitors ask where Sarah is. They seemingly have never met this woman, and yet they know her name, and Abraham responds, she's here in the tent. And then one of these visitors steps forward and reveals The purpose of this visit, one of these visitors repeats that long-awaited promise that Abraham had received so many years before. The visitor says to his host, I will return to you in the same season, a year from now, and your wife will have borne you a son. Now, this is obviously the season for it, but have you noticed how often good news is delivered in a birth announcement? It happens over and over in our Bibles. It happens over and over again in our regular lives. Salvation is coming, and it's coming through the womb. And so this announcement is made. And Sarah laughs. Those days are for me long gone, says Sarah. And have you seen my husband? He's rather ancient himself. Will we really know this joy? And then finally, the narrator shows that this visitor wants Abraham to know exactly who he is. The narrator is explicit, revealing to all that this word is finally being spoken by God, by the divine, by the one so holy that we don't even carry the name on our lips. The Lord says, is anything too wonderful for the Lord?" Anything too wonderful for the Lord. Now I love the Hebrew word for wonderful here. The word is oplah. Can you say oplah? That's a good word. It can be translated in a lot of different ways. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything too difficult for this God? Is anything too miraculous? Is anything too complex? Is anything too impossible? Is anything too out of the ordinary? Is anything too extraordinary for this God? It's even this line that Luke, the gospel writer, has in mind when Mary welcomes her own divine birth announcement, when Gabriel says, nothing is impossible, nothing is too out of the ordinary for this God. And so Abraham's guests, having received this extraordinary hospitality from a man that was in some pain. And after delivering this word, this word of promise and salvation, they rise and they head towards Sodom, where the reception is going to be quite a bit different. Now, we won't go into the details of that story today, but I'm sure that you know the story. The story is deliberately placed against this story of Abraham to contrast the way that these two different places, these two different people groups, welcome the divine. Abraham is in a tent in the desert, recovering from surgery, and yet he finds the energy and the wherewithal to host these angels unaware, as the writer of Hebrews puts it. But Sodom's a different story. Another biblical writer, Ezekiel, says this of Sodom Sodom was a city that had everything. And yet she offered nothing to these weary and needy travelers. So, in this epiphany season, I would invite you to consider two things. The first is how do you receive the divine? Maybe even more than that, how do you receive even those that are in need in the moments when the time is not right? How do you welcome those who come to you even when welcoming is difficult? One thing that we know about the setting of this story is that in this place, hospitality is a matter of life and death. In the desert, if you are not hospitable, the people that are traveling will die. But it's not just the travelers that are at risk, because if you don't offer hospitality even to your enemy, you know that the next time that you're stranded in the desert, they might not return it to you. But these stories tell us even more. The reason that these stories of Abraham and Sodom are put back to back is because Abraham welcomed visitors who appeared to be mere mortals. But you and I know that the divine hides in flesh. And in this welcome, Abraham welcomed the divine. And the divine brought this blessing. But the city that had all that it needed looked to these visitors instead for what they could take from them and for what they could dominate. This arrogant and inhospitable posture inevitably ended up in destruction. And so I ask you to consider during the season, what it is and how it is that you receive the unexpected. And then second, consider this. Is anything, anything too wonderful for this God? Is anything too difficult for this God? Is anything too impossible for this Christ that dwells in you and dwells in me? dwells in all that is. Is anything outside of the realm of possibility for the one that redeems all and the one that becomes all in all?